I'm grateful for the special music today and with the men's uh, quartet singing. And so thank you very much. Singing about God's great faithfulness. I'm trying to balance a lot of books coming up, which should be intimidating uh, for you if I'm coming up with all these notes and things like that. But uh, don't be. I have a purpose. Anyways, we're going to turn to Romans 16 here in just a moment. Uh, Romans chapter 16. And, you know, I've had different thoughts as I was uh, thinking through this sermon, and I don't know if you've noticed, those that read the sermon manuscripts, that happens quite often where there's things that I share that are not necessarily in the sermon notes. And so we'll have some of that today. And a thought that hit me yesterday, which I thought I would share here, and by the way, it's the very end. We're going to Romans 16, verses 25 through 27 today. And thought that hit me as I was actually driving uh, to the church uh, last night, yesterday evening, is thinking about old Bibles. Is there something special if you pull one of your older Bibles off the shelf? And I want to encourage you, give yourself freedom to underline, circle, write in the margins of your Bibles and mark up your Bibles. And so I pulled some of my older ones off the shelf last night. Uh, This is my first study Bible. And if you look at it, you'll see it's the King James study Bible because I was devoted to the King James from the time I was about 17 years old to when I was almost 23, when I began really, really, really studying translations, starting with the class. And, you know, me and the study Bible, we had a lot of good times studying the word of God. We had a lot of good times as I was in a discipleship class and required to spend an hour each week in intensive Bible study in addition to daily devotions. And I was going chapter by chapter through Revelation, making observations and cross-references and things like that. And it's God's word, right? It's powerful. And so there's something personal when I pull this off the shelf. And then when I got saved from the King James Version, I'm kidding with that. The King James Version was a good translation and and still is for some. I started using uh, the, the most direct Bible translation, the most direct from the Hebrew Greek, a modern translation, the New American Standard Bible. And I got this one when I was starting a Pentateuch class at Cedarville University, where all good Christians go to college, Cedarville. So if you're a good Christian, plan to go to Cedarville. Anyways, I'm kidding, of course. Don't write me. Um, And we were supposed to get a modern literal translation. So I got this little kind of minor size with a little snap cover, New American Standard Bible. And it took me through my junior and senior year at Cedarville and three years of seminary. And sometimes even now I go to look at it because it got so many little marginal notes and underlines and, and copies. And why do... Why does it matter like when we pull Bibles off the shelf? Why does it matter when we open the Bible and we look at it? And I think oftentimes when we're reading a Bible, especially when we're marking it up, when we're writing or or maybe using a prayer journal, those types of things are making our faith tangible. They're tangible expressions of our faith as you write, as you underline. And then as you look back in your notes, and sometimes you look back in your notes and you can see, wow, Wow, God has grown me. Chuck Swindoll, I once heard, took in uh, one of his early Bibles, maybe his first real study Bible, off the shelf. And, and this was, he was looking 40 years or something in the past at it. He said, I noticed looking through my notes in that Bible, all one train of thought. And he was commenting back at his spiritual growth since then. But they make our faith tangible. And why do we hold our Bibles with high regard? Because God is holy, Right? God is holy, and therefore his word is set apart, sacred, 
uh, sanctified. And today, as we finish the book of Romans today, we're finishing a study of God's word to the church at Rome. And we're finishing the book of Romans with a doxology. The book of Romans, what was a dominant theme of the book of Romans? Salvation, right? Salvation for Jews and Gentiles, for Israel and all the other nations. And salvation by working hard, right? Salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments, right? No. Salvation by faith alone, through Jesus alone. Two weeks ago, I got to... uh, preach in the afternoon at a struggling church that uh, kind of almost closed, but then decided they're going to try to restart out an alliance. I had contact with the church and alliance, and they invited me to, to, to come out and share God's word, which is a privilege. And so I chose to speak on Romans 8, 31 through 39. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, what else will, not, will, will God not do for us? He did the greater, right? He gave up his son. He did the greater. Jesus went to the cross for us. He allowed himself to be beaten beyond recognition. And you know about that real quick. The Jewish people had a limit. They called it 40 lashes minus one. It was a beating with a cat of nine tails. It was a flogging. And you know, if you study the cat of nine tails, it had straps of metal metal and glass and things like that in it and they would whip someone and they would pull it back pulling the skin back with it a lot of people died in the beatings and the reason the jewish people had 40 lashes minus one is they thought nobody could 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 live beyond 40 lashes 40 whippings but that was not a roman thing that was a jewish thing the Romans would beat people, you know, they didn't limit at 40 and, or 39. Many, many times people died in the beatings themselves. And Pilate likely gave Jesus a, a, a much more severe beating because Pilate didn't really want to crucify Jesus. Pilate said, you know, let me, this, this man's not guilty of any wrong. Pilate washed his hands and said, I wash my hands. But then Pilate gave in to the, to the leaders and allowed Jesus to be crucified. And then he had to go home and face his wife who told him have nothing to do with that man. And, but Jesus, it shows some of his physical shape that he was able to endure that and then go to the cross. And he did that for us. But even more than that, he took the wrath of God in our place. And then he rose again. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, what will he not do to give us everything we need for life and godliness? There's a story about Rebecca Pipert or Pippert. She was an agnostic. An agnostic means that they believe that God cannot be known. It's, it's the prefix ag or a, the prefix a, which means no. A followed by Gnostic, which has to do with knowledge, means no knowledge. Uh, they, they believe God cannot be known, as opposed to an atheist, which has the prefix a followed by theist, which means no God. There is no such thing as God. So Rebecca Pippert was an agnostic, and she had one condition, uh, one, one, one question she continually wrestled with. How can finite, limited Human beings ever claim to know God. How do they know they're not being deceived? How do we know we're not being deceived? How can finite, limited human beings really know God? Then she was laying one sunny afternoon, stretched out on her lawn, and she saw ants busy building a mound. 
And she began to redirect their steps with twigs and leaves. But they simply bounced off and started a new ant mound. She thought that she was kind of being like God. As she continued to try and try to redirect the ants, she thought, what if one ant said to the other ant, do you believe in Becky? And the other ant responded, no, I don't believe in Becky. Becky's just a fairy tale, a myth. There's no such thing as Becky. You're silly. You're crazy. There's no thing as Becky. But then what if one ant responded, of course I believe in Becky. Of course Becky's real. But then she realized to really show the ants that she is real, she would have to come down to their level. She would have to become an ant. And then she realized that's what God did. God came down to our level. God became a human being. That's what we celebrate at the Christmas season. That's what we celebrate with Advent. God became a man. God became human. Jesus. Starting next week, we're going to start looking at the angel accounts in Luke chapter 1, starting with Zechariah. The angel Gabriel came to Zechariah. It's a really, really cool passage. You don't want to miss next weekend or the weekend after or the weekend after the weekend. Just don't miss any weekend, okay? And, you know, the angel account. And, 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 and Gabriel comes to Zechariah. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are older in years. They're past the age of childbearing. He's a priest. He's working, serving before the Lord. And the angel Gabriel says, your wife's going to have a child in her elderly years. He says, how is this possible? And the angel Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I find that really, really cool. That's why I'm sharing it now and next week. I am Gabriel. Later, the angel Gabriel will come, come, come to, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary will ask a similar question, though with less doubt. And the angel will say, there's nothing impossible with God. Our God is amazing. And so Paul ends this letter of Romans with a beautiful doxology. You may know about doxologies. And when I say doxology, you may think of a beautiful, beautiful hymn, which I'm going to start with. I'm going to come back to in a little bit, but I'm not going to sing it to you. Don't you worry. Doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. A powerful hymn that ends with an amen, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. A doxology, having to worship God. Uh, my theme today is Paul closes Romans with a sentence. It's one sentence, though, three verses. One sentence. Paul was good at run-on sentences. Ephesians chapters one, chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, all one sentence. And this is all one sentence. One sentence, worshiping God. I've heard it said Paul could not say hello without sharing the gospel. Paul also couldn't, couldn't say hello or goodbye without worshiping God. And, you know, that's another application that comes to my mind right now as we look at this. Do we worship God? Do we give thanks and praise to God? Do we worship God for salvation? We're going to look at this today. Uh, one, my one main point is we see glory to the only wise God. So we come to the conclusion of Romans. Paul, Paul is going to conclude with a beautiful doxology. A, a, a doxology is a liturgical uh, praise to God. 
It comes from the mid, the word doxology comes from the mid 17th century, so 1600s, via, via medieval Latin from Greek, English to Latin to Greek. And it basically means glory word, glory word. This is a glory word, a word giving glory to God. Logi has to do with a subject of speech or interest, word, study of. So you think of theology, logi has to do with the study of God. This is a glory word. This sentence, these three verses are, a, are, are, are three verses of glory words to God. This doxology rehashes some of the themes of Romans. It, it, it is even similar to his introduction, showing how well thought out the epistle of Romans was. Paul dictated this whole letter of Romans. And I guarantee they did not have whiteout. That wasn't invented until the 1960s. He could not just backspace like we can do today. Yet he was able to dictate the letter of Romans and it all flows together. It all flows together. Of course, we say Paul dictated. It was really double dictated. It was the Holy Spirit to Paul and Paul to his scribe. And so this doxology actually sinks together. It shake hands with, so to speak, the intro to Romans in Romans 1, 1 to 5. The final three verses of Romans form a doxology that is liturgical in character, uh, one commentator wrote. Let's read verses 25 to 27. I've talked about them. Let's read them. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring, up, to, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I love how that ends. To the only wise God. We'll come back to that here in a minute. But do you realize God is the only wise God? I was listening to this book earlier this morning called The Hope Quotient. And there was an interesting story because, you know, my daughter's 10 and, and she acts like she's going on 22. And I guess it's that tween age. So I don't know what 16 is going to be like. Many times I walk in the door and I just hear the arguing with Megan and, you know, uh, the arguing. And I'm like, wow, you know, what's going on here? And so I was reading this, listening to this story. And this one mom was riding a car with with her daughter, who was something like 16 and thought she was really special and knew everything. And so they drive past someone and the mom says real quick, look out, duck down and ducks her daughter down under the seat. And, and they, she speeds past a few blocks. Then her daughter sits upright and says, oh, what was going on? What happened? And she said, oh, we were passing one of my friends from high school and I didn't want to be seen with you. Because, <laughs> that's a funny story because that's how the teenagers are with their parents, right? They don't want to be seen with their parents. So she played it back on her and I, I plan on using that someday. <laughs> God is the only wise God. And just like many times our children get to that point where they think they know everything, sometimes we do the same, don't we, to God. We fail to trust him. 
We fail to surrender to him. We're going to come back to that. But look at this beginning, verse 25. He says, now, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now to him. By context, we know that Paul is writing about God the Father. Now to him. Now to God the Father. He's giving praise. He's giving worship. He's giving glory. He's giving exaltation to God the Father. Now to God the Father who is able. You ever think about that? We could stop right there and have a sermon all on that little phrase. Now to him who is able. God is able. That's what that passage I referenced earlier, Romans 8, 31 through 39, is about, you know, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He is able to give us all things we need for life and strength and godliness. Now to him who is able. Don't miss that. God is able to strengthen you. But how? Paul says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is a vertical prayer. It's a vertical worship. It's a vertical praise. It's not horizontal. He's not talking about strengthening you with a bunch of money and all that. He's talking about salvation. He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, this does not mean that the gospel is literally Paul's. No, Paul just has a stewardship of the gospel. He says, according to my gospel, Paul had a stewardship to preach the gospel. He had a stewardship to preach the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. God is able to strengthen you by the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Paul expands on that. He continues. He says, according to the revelation. I'm just walking right through this. So hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. God is able to strengthen you. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret For long ages, God is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and a revelation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of this mystery. What is the mystery? Where is Scooby-Doo? The gospel of Christ. Christ. Scooby-Doo had a mystery machine, and we're not talking about mystery in that way. In the Bible, the mystery had to do with something that was kept secret for a long time, but has now been revealed. So the gospel, as Timothy just mentioned, the idea that God was going to save Jews and Gentiles alike, that was kept secret for many ages. They had these prophecies, but they did not know how God was going to carry this out. Now it has been revealed. The idea of being revealed had the idea of pulling back a curtain. And showing what's behind the curtain. You think of the Wizard of Oz, right? Toto goes to the curtain and pulls back the curtain. That's really what Revelation has in mind. And that's what Paul has in mind here. God has pulled back the curtain and showed the people what he's doing. He is saving Jews and Gentiles. He is saving all through Jesus Christ. Paul says this mystery kept secret for long ages. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Have you noticed as we preach through Romans all the Old Testament passages that Paul uses? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is filled with Old Testament passages. All these Old Testament passages were prophesying things that came about in the New Testament. And Paul uses those to make the case for what is God 
what God is doing. The mystery is a common idea of Paul's writings. If you pick up my sermon manuscript from the back, you'll see that I listed several passages where Paul references mystery. Paul used the prophetic writings to reveal this mystery. This mystery was revealed to the nations. In other words, to the Gentiles. The mystery is about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And the salvation is for Jew and Gentile. By the way, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 is very similar about the mystery of the gospel. Jesus risen from the dead. And this came about, Paul says, according to the command of the eternal God. This is a theological statement. The eternal God. Is God eternal? Yes. Amen. God is outside of time. This is a theological statement. This mystery came about according to the command of the eternal God. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God the Father is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's in Revelation 1, 8, 21, 6, and 22, 13. Colossians 1, 17. Jesus holds all creation together by the word of his power. This mystery is according to the command of the eternal God. And what is the purpose? Paul gives us a purpose. To bring about the obedience of faith. God wants Jews and Gentiles to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, to have faith in him. And guess what? The faith comes first and then the obedience comes. To bring about the obedience of faith. One source here is when Paul began this letter, he explained that he had received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, towards the end of the letter, he says that he won't boast except of what he has accomplished through him. And leading the Gentiles to obey God, that was Romans 15, 18. And in Romans 16, 19, Paul tells his audience that he rejoices because everyone has heard of their obedience. Everyone has heard about the obedience of the church in Rome. The mystery that has been revealed clearly now is that Gentiles, as well as Jews, should come to the obedience that comes from faith. Verse 27 is a powerful statement. Look at verse 27 again. Verse 27. To the only wise God. Remember I said we were gonna come back to that. To the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. To the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Give glory to God. That statement in and of itself gives glory to God. Because the statement itself says that he is the only wise God. Do we recognize that God is wise? Sometimes we just want to figure everything out. And we do not allow room for mystery. And thinking and praying about Um, My next sermon series after Advent and after early January, and I'm considering a series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which I would call Answers in Genesis. I came up with the title on my own. No, I didn't. (laughs) You probably heard of the ministry, Answers in Genesis, because many times that's the the thing the devil attacks, right? Creation, the beginning. In Genesis 3, Satan comes to Eve and says... Has God really said? Satan has been questioning God's word ever since the beginning of time. He's still doing that to us, right? You're reading your Bible and you're thinking, 
This can't be true. The devil's tempting you. Did God really say? God is the only wise God. Let me ask you this. Uh, it's just a question. Anybody can answer it. Were any of you there at creation? Uh, any of you that old? Neither was I. But sometimes we believe or we act like, or the people teaching us act like they were there, right? God is the only wise God. By the way, that means that he has knowledge, but more than knowledge, he has wisdom. Some people today can have knowledge, but without wisdom. Remember uh, Romans eleven twenty eight. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Oh, the depth. That's at the end of the theology of Romans chapters 1 through 11. And the apostle Paul just exclaims, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Remember, I said that many of the great heresies of the past have been attempting to scrut the inscrutable. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. That's because in Romans chapters 8, 9, and 10, and 11, Paul wrote about, taught about things that we just can't figure out. And it bothers me because I want to figure it out. And we have to allow mystery. And that's what Paul is saying right there. There's mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We should all memorize that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. There are things that are secret. And guess what? We aren't capable of understanding them anyways. Romans eleven thirty four. Who has known the mind of the Lord? God is the only wise God. We need to give glory to God. Here's a few applications with review. We must recognize that God is able. No matter what we go through in this life, remember that God is able. But also pray according to God's will. God is able to save us. God is able to take care of our needs. God is able to strengthen us. God is able to strengthen you by the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We must trust God. Many times we say we're trusting God, but we proceed to do things our way, don't we? Remember Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, God says. God has revealed himself and his way of salvation to us. Do you ever praise and thank and worship God that he, he has revealed himself to us? We must worship God. He is the only God. He is wise. He deserves glory. I have an illustration which you can read. I'm not going to read it. Um, it's at the end of the sermon notes. You know, it kind of has the idea that some, many times we don't recognize the power of the awesomeness of the Holy Spirit within us. If, if, we really, if we really recognize the power, we would all be wearing hard hats and crash helmets to church and not, you know, straw hats or, or whatever. You know, um, God is no one to be trifled with. I like in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when I think it's Lucy says he's not a tame lion, referring to Aslan, who represents God. I'm going to close how I began with the doxology. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Desiring God uh, had an article about this doxology. It's just a real short article I want to read to you here in a moment. Uh, there are 25 words, 25 words known to many around the world today as the doxology. When we say the doxology, you're likely not thinking of Romans 8, 25 through 27. I mean, Romans 16, 25 through 27, or the end of Romans 11. You're thinking of praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? Just 25 words. And they comprise what is likely the single best known verse of all Christian hymnology and poetry. On the surface, these lyrics are surprisingly modest and memorable. Few of us remember first hearing them. I, for one, do not remember when I first heard the doxology. And few recall straining to learn them. Yet as simple and accessible as these four lines are, Christians have been singing them now for more than three centuries. Because simple doesn't mean shallow. Simple does not mean shallow. Plain does not exclude profound, which is one of the the striking truths at the heart of our faith and one of the great evidences for its truth. From the Gospel of John to the early creeds to the most widely known and enduring lyrics we share with the global church today. All through church history, all through the gospel, simple does not mean shallow. They are profound truths. The greatest realities about God and his world, when understood aright, can be captured in the humblest of terms, even as they are bottomless in their depth. And yet, we find an enduring quality in the doxology. Absent. And yet we find an enduring quality in the doxology absent from many of our passing modern choruses. Substance hides in the brevity and singability. Though short, the the hymn is a coherent progression rather than a loosely connected attempt at memorable phrases and turns on the profound theological truths of God's aseity and generosity in God as Trinity. Thomas Ken lived from 1637 to 1711. And he crafted these plain and profound words in the late 1600s. He wrote them as the final and doxological stanza of three hymns he published. First for students at Winchester College at Oxford University. Ken, who was an Anglican minister, royal chaplain, and eventually bishop, first penned verses for his students at Winchester to sing, get this, upon arising in the morning and at bedtime each evening. (laughs) He penned short little hymns for his students to sing in the morning and the evening. How often do we do that? Are we singing a hymn before we go to bed and, be, and when we get up in the morning? That's, that's, that's what he did. Later, Thomas Ken <clears throat> added a third hymn to re- rehearse at midnight were students to have trouble sleeping. Isn't that nice of him? To, to make one at midnight, too, for students having trouble sleeping. Each hymn was a confession of faith and an invocation of divine blessing, tailored to its particular moment of the day. And each hymn ended with the same 25-word doxological verse in praise, three in one. So these three hymns ended with what we call and sing as the doxology. Ken's hymns have by no means been lost today. However, it is his final verse, our beloved doxology, that has endured so well known is it that it needs no placeholder in our hymn books. Christians the world over simply know it almost without fail, both Ken's timeless words and the tune which Ken did not write, but which much later began to accompany the song. The tune to the doxology 
used to be called the, one, the Old 100th, originally designed to accompany the singing of Psalm 134 and later Psalm 100. And it first appeared in the Geneva Psalter in 1551. And it was written by Louis Burgoy, and, uh, who served as the head of choirs and music alongside famous pastor and theologian John Calvin. So there was the hymn, which Thomas Kinn wrote, and later they added this tune that already existed for over 100 years to the hymn, and they brought them together. What then has been the power of these 25 words? Why have they endured for many? Why have they endured and for many become one of the most basic and repeated expressions of the Christian faith? For one, our God is indeed the one from whom all genuine blessings flow, right? Our God is the one by whom all genuine blessings flow. That's what it says. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He himself is the blessed one. The only one in whom is fullness of joy and pleasure is forevermore. Yet unshakable, happy as he is, he is not a God inclined to keep to himself, but he gives generously. He is happy enough to be outgoing. God delights to give, to overflow with joy, to bless his creatures and share his own happiness in them. And then with them, he is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift, James 1.17. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore, Romans 11.36. And then what else is in the doxology? This Trinitarian language, right? This blessed God is also sovereign over all. He is both the singular source of all true good, and he is the almighty. He is the creator and sustainer of all nature. And and all the heavenly hosts above and all creatures here below, here and there, above and below, he is God and does all that he pleases. As a great, humbled king of Babylon learned to declare in his own doxology, our God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. That's the king of Babylon speaking in Daniel chapter four, verse 35. Still this God, utterly complete in his goodness and power, has revealed himself to his people. He is one and three, one God, three persons, working in history to redeem and restore his people from their sin and rebellion. He is a God three times for us in a great salvation, which is arranged by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. And so we praise him as three and one, and one and three, just as we baptize in the name of the Father, and, the, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and pray with the Apostle, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we end this sermon with this beautiful doxology, this glory word which the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 16, certainly inspired by you. And we end here in a moment with greatest thy faithfulness. You are faithful, Lord. You are faithful to save us. Your hand is not too short. You are not too weak. You save us. You delight in saving us, Lord God. We give you praise. We give you exaltation. As we leave the book of Romans, I pray that it has made an eternal and permanent stamp on all of our lives, we recognize how awesome, how great our salvation is. And we respond in doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. And we're going to go ahead and close with that again. Don't worry about the words. We know them. Um,